Good morning and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Just to let you know what exhibitions we have on view right now, we have the Hirschfeld Century, which will be closing soon. I just saw on PBS, um, I think it's called New York City Arts, they had a wonderful interview with Louise Hirschfeld on her late husband. Um, if you can catch that and see the exhibition or see the exhibition and then catch Louise, uh, it's wonderful. And we have the Picasso Le Tricorn Curtain uh, hanging in our Dexter Hall on the second floor and that will be up for quite a while. And Freedom's Journey 1965 um, also closing soon. Coming up, Silicon City Computer History Made in New York which will be about the invention of computers with um, about um, IBM, um, the, the, the New York story, and superheroes in Gotham, the other wonderful exhibition, and, and as well as our train show, which will be opening soon. So we have great things coming up and wonderful programs and classic films to complement them. If you don't have our full winter brochure, pick it up. It has all the information on exhibitions and programs in it. And after you pick it up, if you're not a member, I want to invite you to join the family. You'll get great benefits, great discounts on the programs. So just, I always like to ask how many members do we have with us? Consider upgrading. So today, this morning's program, How Washington Won, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians, as well as film directors now and um, actors, uh, daughters of film directors and other um, authors to our film series as well. We want to thank him for all his support. Let's give him a great hand. I'd also like to thank our partner in presenting today's program. We've been working with the Foreign Policy Research Institute for quite a number of years now. They, they bring to us wonderful speakers, as you will see this morning. And um, I'd like to recognize as well, all the Chairman's Council members with us for all their great work and support. So let's give all of them a hand as well. So the program this morning will last an hour and a half, and it will include a question and answer session. On our Saturdays, we have lots more time for the Q&A. And we'll invite audience members to approach the two standing mics in the aisles. And we, we ask you to do this so that everyone in the auditorium can hear you. And we also record it so everyone in the greater world will hear you on the podcast. If you don't speak into the mic, uh, your question won't be heard. Now is the time when I ask everyone to turn off their cell phones, um, beepers, you know, your watch beepers, um, and to keep your cell phones off during the event, even though it's light, <clears throat> the light from your cell phone could distract your neighbor. And we don't want any distraction from Jeremy Black. Right. So now I'd like to welcome Alan Luxemburg, the president of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, who will be introducing today's speaker. 
Based in Philadelphia, FPR, FPRI's mission is to bring the insights of scholarship to bear on the development of policies that advance U.S. national, institute, na national interests. The Institute has been ranked as the number one think tank in the country with a budget of under $5 million. So now, please join me in welcoming Alan Luxemburg. Thank you. also welcome you on behalf of the Foreign Policy Research Institute and say how honored we are to join with the New York Historical Society in these uh, series of programs. Uh, although uh, Dale gave you a, a little introduction, let me just add a few more words. We were founded in uh, 1955 in Philadelphia on the premise that a nation should think before it acts, which was not bad advice then. It remains good advice today. Uh, mission, as Dale said, is to bring the insights of scholarship to bear on the foreign policy challenges facing the United States and to educate the public. Our founder was one of the early popularizers of what's called the geopolitics, which is to look at contemporary international affairs through the lens of history, geography, and culture. Or as one of my colleagues likes to say, to understand the realities and mentalities of the localities. Uh, given the turmoil in the world today, that mission and that method uh, are as important today as more important today than ever before. Now, it's my honor to introduce my colleague Jeremy Black, who is a professor of history at the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom. He is also a senior fellow of the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He, this is actually a return visit for him to the New York Historical Society. He spoke here last year to great effect. And he is the author of over 100 books on war and diplomacy, which probably means he's the most prolific historian in world history. Um, actually, I counted last night. He has eight books uh, coming out this year, which uh, must mean that he got no sleep all of last year. I only hope he's awake for this morning's talk. <laughs> uh, we've asked uh, Jeremy, uh, who is a British historian, to speak on a subject close to his heart, which is how uh, George Washington beat the British in the American Revolutionary War. So please join me in welcoming Jeremy Black. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for having me back. You will know the scene. You will have seen it in many books. You will have seen it in films. On one side of a meadow, there are lines of redcoats slowly moving forward, holding their muskets. On the other side of the scene, crouching, sort of hiding, as it were, but ready to fire, are brave American patriots, clad in brown or green, ready to shoot these idiots to pieces. And in a way, the standard account, the standard account, the same account we would have, the same visual picture we would have, because we watch American films too, the standard account of the American War of Independence is an account which really doesn't give you much credit for winning, does it? I mean, what if you were up against these anachronistic, the jargon historical term is ancien regime, these anachronistic, outdated forces, you were bound to win. 
If you're on the side of history, if you're on the side of progress, you're bound to win. And the American public accountant is not necessarily a, a bad account. I just want to try and show you it's more complicated. But the American account argues that militarily they were bound to win and politically they were bound to win. How can you hold people down if they're in an imperial structure that they want to lose? So, in other words, you were bound to win. The military side and the political side were the two halves, the two different sides of the same coin. And bar getting a little cold at Valley Forge and having to make a few good speeches, the Americans were there. <laughs> now, what I want to show you is that this was a much greater task, a much harder task, and in saying that, I want to focus more, in a way, on the achievement of beating Britain. I want to show that it was actually a very difficult task that the Patriots took on, and I want to argue and look at the question as to something that would have struck them at the time. Was it inevitable they were going to win? Could the British have won, whatever winning means in this context? And what should we attribute American success to? So I'm going to start off by discussing some of the factors which made it relatively easy for the British to fight this war. I'm then going to talk about some of the factors that made it difficult for the Americans to fight the war. And then I'm then going to put them together to ask the question, could the British have won? And in doing so, I will highlight the American achievement at beating them. OK? So let's start off. 1775, Britain is the strongest empire, maritime empire in the world. Her army isn't as big as China's or Russia's. Uh, but in terms of the, her fleet, she has the biggest fleet in the world. And she has the greatest capacity as a result for global power projection. The last year that she'd been fighting, or fighting a European power, had been 1762, and British forces in 1762, I know somebody might say to me, the Seven Years' War, the, what you call the French and Indian War, didn't end till 63. There isn't any fighting in 63. But in 1762, the last year she'd been fighting, British forces simultaneously had captured Cuba, Havana, from Spain and Manila from Spain, an achievement the Americans were, of course, to emulate, to match in 1898, great achievement in 1898, but in 1898 they had the benefit of steam engines and telegraphs and technologically it was easier. If you have the capacity to capture Manila or Havana, then quite frankly New York or Charleston isn't really much of a challenge because they're not as far and because environmentally they're not as hazardous. About a third of the British army that went and captured Havana died of yellow fever. That was not the kind of problem that the British had to encounter if they were campaigning here or, or, or around Philadelphia. So Britain has this great global power uh, capacity. Second, the British system is the most effective mercantile system in the world, generating vast profits for the British economy. The British are beginning what subsequently people were to call the Industrial Revolution. But as a result of that, the tax base for the British state is very good. Britain is able to go on financing her war with no problems. Um, indeed, British national debt is such such attractive an investment that people will lend money to the British state, not just Brits, but foreigners, will lend money to the British state at an interest rate well below what they would lend to France or what they would lend to Spain. So the British state can afford this war, and indeed it does afford this war. There's no real financial crisis during it, even though in terms of the number of years, it's longer as a war than either the First World War or the Second World War. 
Thirdly, the British have a lot of experience of what we these days call COIN or counterinsurgency warfare. Britain faced four major insurgencies in the 18th century. The Jacobite rising in Scotland in Northern England in 1715 to 16, another Jacobite rising um, in Scotland and Northern England in 1745 to 46, the American Revolution, and an Irish rising in 1798. They won three of them, they lost the one in America. So it's, in other words, they have the capacity to take part in counterinsurgency warfare and to do it. And some of the same people involved. Cornwallis, the general who surrenders at Yorktown in 1781, is commander-in-chief in Ireland in 1798. And he finds, uh, you know, the French invade in support of the Irish and Cornwallis manages to both beat the Irish and beat the French. Or Lord George Germain, who is the British Secretary of State for War during the first years of the American Revolution, in fact, up to 1782, he, as a young army officer, had played a role in what the British euphemistically thought of as the pacification of the Scottish Highlands in 1746. So, in other words, the British were used to this sort of thing. And as far as used to things as well, it's, where, it's well to point out that they were used to fighting in North America. It's not as though British forces hadn't been here already. Indeed, it's worth bearing in mind that in what you call the French and Indian War and what we call the Seven Years' War, the British had conquered New France, we call it Canada. Uh, British troops uh, with, with American militia allies had been very successful in what was by many standards a formidable uh, task, formidable in the sense that um, whereas, for example, you could get into the harbours on the east coast of America with some ease, whatever the season, <coughs> you couldn't do the same up the St Lawrence. And the British had conquered Canada in successive campaigns from 1758 to 1760. Many of their officers, many of their soldiers were used to campaigning in North America. And again, compared to Canada, the eastern seaboard was more accessible to British power. And you need to think about the eastern seaboard not in terms of what we um, understand the geography of America as, but you need to think of it in terms of roughly like this. In 1775, 75% of the population of the 13 colonies lived within 75 miles of the coast, of the Atlantic coast. And those 75% was everybody that counted. Nobody really, and this includes American politics, once America became independent, nobody in the initial stages cared what people thought, uh, you know, in the Appalachians or um, in their foothills. The people that counted lived in the cities and they lived in the coastal plains and nearby areas. And America was in many senses rather like modern Australia. As you probably know if you've been to Australia, it's a lovely country. It has all the advantages of America without drive-by killings. Um, if you've been... Um, <laughs> I could have added ostentatious religiosity, but I didn't wish to be offensive. Um, the, the, although the men are similarly boring and that they go on endlessly about sport. But anyway, we'll leave that to one side. If you visit, if you visit Australia, you will know that the Australian self-image is that they're all heroes and they spend their time wrestling crocodiles and this sort of thing. You know. The reality is Australia is an extremely urban country. And the vast majority of Australians live in Sydney or Melbourne, Queensland or Hobart, Perth or Adelaide. Very few actually live out in the countryside. And in many senses, as far as American power was concerned, as far as economic power was concerned, America was a profoundly um, urban society. Boston, Philadelphia, New York, Charleston, Savannah, these were the key points. And all of them, of course, were exposed to a maritime state. 
Remember, the ships we're talking about are not modern ships. They're ships that, seagoing ships that could also go a considerable way uh, upriver. It was possible for seagoing ships in this state to go, as, or this province as it was, to go as far, uh, far upriver as Albany. Places like Philadelphia, which we would now see as a river city, were in fact, as far as contemporaries were concerned, a city on the ocean. And with amphibious capability, it meant that all of these positions were vulnerable to British power. And indeed, at one stage or other during the revolution, the British controlled every single major city on the East Coast. Obviously, not all of them at the same time. They weren't in Boston after the spring of 1776. But nevertheless, at one stage or other, they controlled all the cities. All of these cities were subject to British attack. So that's, again, a point that is worth bearing in mind. And the Americans had no real capacity to take on warships. There wasn't a, a uh, they didn't have a fleet. They had individual ships, some of which were not bad in frigate to frigate actions, but they didn't have a fleet in being. The same thing, of course, uh, occurs as a problem, as you will recall, during the War of 1812. Ultimately, in the War of 1812, the British are able to launch amphibious forces against the Potomac against New Orleans. Once they get to shore, they don't always do terribly well, but they're actually able to get there. And because the Americans don't have the capacity with, fleet, with a fleet to actually block their approach. There, there is, of course, as you will know, a brilliant attempt to end all this with technological innovation. Uh, I'm thinking of the first use of a workable uh, type of what kind of weapon, anybody? Question time. Submarine, thank you very much. The first submarine. Now, I'm rather tubby or plump or whatever, very fat, let's just say fat. Okay, if you think of a corked wooden barrel, so a wooden barrel with, you know, with pitch in to stop water going in, a corked wooden barrel, which I would fit in, and it's, it operates on a kind of bicycle mechanism. I lift my feet up and down, and that drives a screw at the back. It's a semi-submersible. In other words, most of it is below the water level, but the top is above the water, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to breathe. Okay, there's no system at that point other than pig's bladders, which don't last for very long, at carrying, uh, water un uh, carrying air underwater. And it's armed with what I think we could fairly describe as a giant corkscrew. Uh, so inside you can turn this thing and the outside the corkscrew will move forward. And attached to that is what they called a torpedo. We would call it a mine. Now, you will not be surprised to hear that when HMS Eagle saw this thing coming towards it uh, in uh, New York Harbour in 1776, it was well able to take avoiding action. I mean, in, in theory, the submarine was a brilliant idea against uh, ships operating in open roadsteads. The practice is, until you got what you get uh, in the 19th century, which is a system of actually having air uh, uh, you know, within, the vehicle, within the vessel, a system of an, a motor and a system system of a um, powered torpedo, which is detachable, so it doesn't blow up the submarine, until you get all of those submarines aren't viable. And what that reminds us of is that in many senses, the war of independence is fought with very traditional weapons. It's not really a challenge for the British in terms of new weaponry. New weaponry is starting to come in. Um, in the uh, fighting of that period, as you will recall, in the War of 1812, the dastardly Brits brought rockets to North America and fired them to make sort of exciting visual effects, but no, not to any real substantive uh, effect round uh, Baltimore. But at least they were trying. 
by that time, the British also had shrapnel. They also had semaphore systems. They had, they had new weaponry. And the Americans, of course, Robert Fulton, de developed the first workable uh, vessel with, uh, with steam power, all for the War of 1812. Um, the, war, the American War of Independence, on the other hand, is fought with very much more conventional weaponry. There are no weapons used in that war that had not been used already in wars the British uh, were accustomed to. People sometimes ask me about the rifle. Um, well, this is an American audience. I take it you probably all got a concealed weapon. I'm not, is it against, Dale, is it against the, war, the rules for them to have a concealed weapon here? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've tried to walk this way because of the mic, sorry. Okay, the, sorry about that. The, um, the, uh, you probably know more about weapons than I do, but the point is this, that a, that a rifle, which essentially means a grooved barrel on the inside, um, a rifle will fire a shot further because it is aerodynamically more efficient and because it doesn't lose so much of the power with the, with the windage, the gap between the projectile and the barrel. A rifle will actually kill people at a greater range um, than a musket. And rifles are very useful to the Americans at Saratoga. But several things to bear in mind. First of all, the British had rifles themselves. Uh, rifles are not unique to the Americans. Secondly, the reason most soldiers aren't armed with rifles is simple, that rifles don't bear, or most rifles don't bear bayonets. They're too complicated, uh, too fragile, whereas a musket, which is a smoothbore, can easily have a bayonet attached to it. And at the kind of range most people are fighting at, which is roughly the length of this stage, this would be a, a long distance, the length of this stage. Uh, and generally, the, the lines would be closer than that. At that range, you want to have a bayonet to feel safe with. Because otherwise, you can squeeze off with a rifle. Depends how good, a, uh, how good you are at it, but it's generally about one shot a minute. It takes longer to reload a rifle than it does a musket. A musket at the hands of a skilled firer will, will take three shots a minute. Well, if you're at that end and somebody's at this end and they're running towards you, shooting one shot off isn't very good. You need to have a better gun. Uh, you need to have a gun with a bayonet. So the rifle itself is not that fundamental um, a difference. So the British and the Americans are armed with fundamentally the same weapon. Most American soldiers are armed with muskets, not rifles. Most British soldiers are armed with muskets, not rifles. Each side have riflemen. But the British are not having to face anything particularly different. The major contrast between a battlefield in the American War of Independence and a battlefield in, the, uh, in Europe during the uh, combats of the period is in Europe you have more cavalry. There's very little cavalry used in the American War of Independence. In the South, battles like King's Mountain, Americans often rode to the battle, but they tended to dismount and fight on foot. This, the British didn't really bring any significant numbers of cavalry because for, for obvious reasons. Um, the kind of horse transports they use in that period uh, are vulnerable to uh, Atlantic storms and of course the horses risk breaking their legs and that's it. So for both sides, they're fundamentally, there are one or two exceptions which we can go into if you're interested, but they're fundamentally infantry battles. You fire as a result in a slightly more open order. You're not quite as close packed together because you don't have to fear being charged down by horses. And the usual way if you're fearing being charged down is to pack yourself together. Other than that, pretty much the same as what all of these people are used to. What other advantages did Britain have? Well, it's politically stable in this period. 
the government has won the 1774 general election. The next general election under the Septennial Act, you have uh, uh, general elections due every four years. We now have them due every five years. In the 18th century, by law, you had a general election at least every seven years. You could always have it on a shorter period or when the king dies and a new government had to be formed. The government isn't due one to 1781. It holds it, in fact, in 1780, which is perfectly legal, and it wins. So yes, there are many people in Britain who think they shouldn't be fighting the Americans, but the practicality is they are not able to have enough traction in the political system. About a sixth of the population, male population, signs petitions against war with the, with the Americans. But, you know, a sixth is just that, a sixth. And so the government, having won the 74 election, wins the 1780 election, and is, it remains in control of Parliament till after Yorktown. And after Yorktown, there's a crisis of confidence among the members of parliament and the government then falls and a new government comes in pledged to negotiate an end to the war. But prior to that, pretty much domestic support for the war. What other point, points about the Americas? Well, in the Americas, the British have 25 colonies, including the West Indies, we're including the colonies in Canada. So Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, Upper and Lower Canada are separate uh, colonies. And in, of those 25, only 13 rebel. Well, 13's a lot, and you don't want to have any, any of them rebelling. But the point is that the British wouldn't really have had a chance at all if all the colonies had rebelled. Um, there had been a lot of agitation in the West Indies, the British West Indies at the time of the Stamp Act, which, of course, caused a lot of problems in America, including New York, um, in the mid-1760s. But during the war, the actual other colonies are actually quite peaceful. There's not really much problems for the British. And that is crucially important in strategic terms. The three major uh, uh, naval bases for Britain in the New World, by chance, none of them are in the 13 colonies. The most important on the continental landmass is Halifax in Nova Scotia. Then there's Antigua. And then there is Kingston, Jamaica. The result is that Britain has safe naval bases to the south and to the north. Same problem for the Americans, incidentally, in the War of 1812. And on top of that, safe bases from which to operate against the 13 colonies. So if you look at, for example, um, the spring of 1776. The spring of 1776, George Washington, who shows in this respect a really good, he's actually not a bad tactical general, in this respect pretty good, he gets his cannon onto the Dorchester Heights, that commands the Boston anchorage and the British evacuate Boston. So the Americans don't actually need to storm the city, which they probably wouldn't have succeeded in doing, or at the best would have taken very heavy casualties to do. They hadn't succeeded when they'd attacked Quebec. Um, so the, but they get, they get the British out of Boston and of course if the British had had to sail all the way back to Portsmouth or Plymouth then that would have been a major task for them then to reinvade America but all Howe needs to do in fact is to sail up to Halifax to resupply to take on new uh, troops and then pops up in Staten Island that summer and of course, there's absolutely nothing the Americans can do to stop him either sailing back up to Halifax, resupplying there, or popping up at, at Staten Island. Because they've got these bases, because they've got the naval strength, they have the strategic initiative. The Americans, if you like, had had the first political strategic initiative by staging the revolution. But thereafter, the military initiative rests with the British because they have nearby bases and the Navy. And that reminds us of a second point. The Americans had not signed up 
for a long war. And indeed, they'd won the short war they'd signed up for by the end of March 76. By the end of March 76, there isn't any British troops, any British units, any British warships left in the 13 colonies. They've gone, including from New York, where they'd been hanging around the previous winter. They've gone. The Americans have won. The problem is the Second War then starts, and the Second War is tougher, because, as it were, the Empire strikes back, um, the British who arrive at Staten Island in the summer of 1776 are the largest expeditionary force Britain had ever yet sent abroad. And in a sense, the Second War is the much more complicated war because it's a war in which at every stage, neither power is completely victorious. The Americans have been totally victorious by the end of March 76. Not really surprisingly so, the British, with stupid political intelligence, not really understanding what's going on, not prepared for a war, had actually been kicked out relatively easily. But the second war is the war that is really troublesome. Now, when you're looking at that second war, a key thing again that helps the British is the fact that very unusually, they are not at war with anybody else. If you think about it, great powers, the United States is a great power at the moment, usually at any one stage have either conflict or confrontation with other states. And part of the skill of politics, part of the skill of government, part of the, um, as it were, the, the group that Alan uh, leads, is the question of helping people to think through the issue of prioritisation between different foreign commitments and conflicts, between what is a first order challenge and what is a second order challenge, etc. Britain is in a highly unusual position in 1776, and in fact, you could argue it's pretty well the worst time in the century for the Americans to have risen in rebellion, because Britain's at war with nobody else. There's no reason she should be at war with anybody else. She absolutely smashed the French and the Spaniards during the Seven Years' War. And she's deliberately stayed out of the European crisis over the first partition of Poland in 1772-1773. Britain is at peace with everybody else. On top of that, she's at peace in India. She's not at that stage at war with any other Indian power. So the British have the opportunity to focus their military resources, their political attention, their political will, and their capacity to borrow money all on America. And that's not just in 1776, it's in 1777 as well, and it's the beginning, the first six months of 1778. It's not till the summer of 78 that France comes into the war. So very unusually, the British have this margin of opportunity to try and achieve things. War of 1812, completely different. War of 1812 is a toy town war, whilst the real war is going on against Napoleon in Europe. So the British can only release tiny resources to fight the War of 1812. But the War of American Independence is totally different. What other advantages can one look at from the British point of view? Well, another powerful advantage is, of course, American public culture and American society. If you look at the eastern part of the United States, there's no accurate census, but roughly a sixth of the population are African-Americans, the vast majority, not all of them, the vast majority of whom are slaves. They're not particularly motivated to fight against the British. And indeed, some of them, 
Virginia and the Carolinas fight for the Brits because the Brits and the last royal governor of Virginia makes himself very unpopular, say that any slave who runs away from a patriot uh, uh, landlord and join master and joins the Brits will get their liberty, which is not very popular in the South, one hasn't, has to uh, add. But in a sense, insofar as the slaves back anybody, and most of them don't back anybody, they fight for the Brits. Uh, same with the Native Americans. There are some Native Americans who fight for the Americans, but the majority fight for the Brits or allied to the Brits, exactly the same as in the War of 1812, and some of them are quite important. The Iroquois, for example, in 1778-1779, on the western borders of New York State, the western borders of Pennsylvania, are putting up a lot of pressure, and the Americans have to send regular units under Sullivan to campaign against them. But neither the African Americans, most of whom are have got no training, most of whom are held down by their masters. They're not really militarily effective. And the, Af and the Native Americans are off on the margins. The people who are much more important are the patriots. And their bat battlefield with the loyalists. Because this is America's first civil war. And for the British, they have to think about how best to take advantage of that. Now, obviously, in American public accounts, you don't tend to see it as a civil war. Uh, the Canadians do, because many of the loyalists went and emigrated up to Canada at the end of the war. But, you know, nobody knows precisely how many people were loyalists and how many people were patriots. Uh, the usual rough guide that historians use is about a third of the population supported or sympathised with the loyalists, about a third supported or sympathised with about the patriots, and about a third sat on their hands and just didn't want to know, which is entirely normal. In civil war societies, a lot of people just want to look after their family, cultivate their own uh, farm plot, and just aren't interested. That's perfectly normal. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but some historians take different equations. I mean, I've read one uh, American historian which argues a fifth were loyalists, a fifth were patriots, and three-fifths didn't want to know. I mean, it's rather interesting. What is certainly the case is that there were patriots and loyalists and neutrals. So if you're trying to engage in that war, what you really want to do is you want to... Sounds like modern American politics. You want to mobilise your core supporters and encourage them. You want to pull over as many of the people who are undecided to work with you or help you or assist you or be intimidated into assisting you. And you want to intimidate or cow those who are opposed to you so that they don't do anything. And essentially, both sides try and do that. Now, it's complicated by the fact that there are uh, regional concentrations of both patriots and loyalists. The principal regional concentrations of patriots are in Virginia and in New England, particularly, but not only, Massachusetts and Connecticut. Those are the principal patriot areas. Very different in their social dynamics, very different in what happens subsequently and different in the strands they lead towards. But those are the principal patriot areas. The principal loyalist areas, the biggest of all is much of the South. Georgia, for example, has lots of uh, loyalists in coastal... Um, uh, coastal South Carolina, but then there are a lot of loyalists as well, as well in the middle colonies. I hope this doesn't offend any of you to be told that there are many loyalists in New York City. Um, many of them afterwards. It's rather like the French Resistance at the end of the war. Everybody at the end of the war had been a member of the French Resistance, so everybody at the end of the war had been a patriot, but, you know, just bear that. There's a lot of loyalists on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake. There are a lot of loyalists in the Hudson Valley. There are a lot of loyalists in Long Island. So the problem for both sides 
is that there are loyalists as well as patriots, that they are distributed in an uneven fashion. Each side are willing to fight and die for their vision of whatever you might call America at that point. So, for example, the loyalists who die at King's Mountain are among the American units, and I think it's the highest concentration of fatalities in the war. So both sides are willing to die, and that, again, is a problem for the Patriots and a possibility for the British, and it helps to ensure the switch in British strategy in 1778, because in 1778, as you may recall, I mentioned, France comes into the war. That means the British now have to fight the French in the West Indies, in West Africa. They have to take the risk of a French invasion of Britain. And indeed, once Spain comes into the war on the French side in 79, that is attempted. So the British are able to send fewer troops to North America. And at that point, they put much more of an energy, much more of an effort onto the Loyalists, so that there is what one would call, what I would call the Southern strategy develops at the end of 78, and British, uh, the British try and take over Georgia and South Carolina in order to create an area in which they can energise Loyalist support and then gradually move northwards. That becomes their strategy in the second half of the war. We can discuss whether that was a viable strategy or not, but it was a strategy. So, in other words, if you're looking at it from the British point of view, just to recap, political advantage, military advantage, naval advantage, financial advantage, geopolitical advantage, advantage of support within the 13 colonies. Most counterinsurgency struggles uh, over the last 300 years would have been delighted to have had that on their side. All right? Look at it from the American point of view. Well, we'll leave to one side every factor I've just cited has a reverse, which is obviously detrimental for the Americans. That we understand. But let's just focus on a particular point. There isn't much strength to a consciousness of America yet. Now, that tends not to be a view that you will see if you go to Philadelphia or if you look at American patriotism. But in practical terms, what you have is a series of different colonies, most of which had had only a very limited economic or transport links between them, and many of whom are, to put it mildly, uneasy. And you can see that if you're interested in the correspondence of George Washington. George Washington, who becomes the commander of the Continental Army. George Washington's correspondence, brilliant edition, by the way, by the University of Virginia Press. Absolutely brilliant edition. Very detailed, well footnoted, but you get all the letters. What Washington is endlessly complaining about is the way in which the individual states will fight for themselves. They may fight for their neighbour, but they certainly are very unwilling to fight at a distance. Enormous problems about getting the northern states to take much of an interest in the south, not, much, not very easy to get the southern states to take an interest in the north. There is a nation in the works, Philadelphia and the Continental Congress represent that attempt, but it's fighting against a very strong tradition in which politics is fundamentally seen as individual colonies. And that's an important point. And that goes on into the War of 1812. In the War of 1812, most of the New England states refused to allow their militia to cross state lines. So the same sort of thing is going on in the War of Independence. If you turn to another set of correspondence, 
this correspondence of Nathaniel Green, who sent down, he'd been quartermaster general, he's a New England Quaker, he was sent down to command in the South after the debacle at Camden in 1780. The British had done very well in the South. He's sent down to command, and his papers have been published in a brilliant edition by the University of North Carolina Press. And he depicts the same sort of thing, really difficult to actually keep the war effort going. You've got a, a letter out there on display from the Gilda Lerman collection in which Hamilton is complaining in 1780, you can go and read it in the, uh, after you've listened to me, Hamilton is complaining about a lack of, as it were, solidarity, commitment around the course of the cause of the war. And you shouldn't be surprised at that. This is not the war the Americans had signed up for. They had not signed up for a long war. They had not signed up for an intractable war. Instead of which, what they'd really wanted is to bash King George on the nose and then get him to be reasonable. That was the, and they, of course, that's one of the reasons why it takes so long to declare independence. The Americans don't want independence, most of them, in 75. They don't want independence even into early 76. What they want is for George, in their view, to be reasonable, to be a good king, because they want to stay being part of the British trading system, the British imperial protection system. They don't want, uh, many of them are very suspicious of the other states. So that, in a way, there's this reluctance which causes a lot of problems. And, of course, to be cynical, and I'm, this sounds very awful, one of the origins of the revolution is a taxpayer's revolt. That's one of the origins. The evil Brits, they're intent on taxing us, they're intent on taking our assets and sort of telling us what to do. Well, it's not the best basis for staging a revolution and saying to people, now you have to provide men uh, from your community for the army and money for the army. People don't want that. And it's not helped by the fact that the, um, that the currency uh, is very weak, the, the, the uh, paper currency is very, very weak, and people are not really willing to take, or most of them aren't willing to take, the currency instruments that circulate. What other points are worth making about the difficulties the Americans encounter? Well, there's an interesting parallel here. If you go to the British National Archives at Kew, outside London, there's a set of papers there called uh, Headquarters Papers, and they're the correspondence between General Cornwallis, who commands in the South um, in 1780 and 1781, and General Clinton, no relation to the president, former president, but General Clinton was the British overall commander, and he's based in New York. He'd come down to capture Charleston, he'd gone back to New York. Now, the two men hate each other, as is perfectly normal in jet armies, those of you who've been in the military will know that the military classically attract alpha males and the one group who's worst off at getting on with each other are alpha males. Anyway, that um, the two men hate each other, loathe each other, and there's a certain amount of blame shifting. But nevertheless, the substance of Cornwallis's letters are absolutely clear. There is no way I can succeed. I don't have enough men. I don't have enough equipment. The locals are all hostile. They won't uh, provide me with supplies. They kill my messengers. You know, QED, British bound to fail in the South. You then go and look at Nathaniel Green's papers. Green writing back to, uh, to Washington, the originals which I looked at many years ago in the manuscript division of the Library of Congress. Green. 
I don't have enough men, I don't have enough equipment. The locals are all hostile, they're all loyalists. They won't provide me with supplies, they kill my messengers. Now, in one respect, if you're a historian, you will know this is normal. You very rarely get a general writing in to say, I have everything I need, um, you know, I am bound to succeed, it's going to be a walkover. That's not generally the way they do it. But, nevertheless, what that captures is a very real aspect of this war, that like most wars, there is no sense of inevitability, there is no sense among either side that they know what is going to happen, and as a result of that, contingency, circumstance, the play of events are very consequential. Now, you might say against that, well, the John Adams phrase, the revolution is won in men's hearts before it even started. In other words, once people are, are willing to die for a vision of their country or a vision of a different political outlook, they are bound to win. Well, in fact, that's just not true. You know, I mean, look in Alabama in 1865, if you fondly believe that. Uh, the fact, you know, there are insurgencies that have been successful, there are insurgencies that have been unsuccessful. The fact that people were willing to die for a cause, and these were brave men, um, that doesn't mean they were necessarily bound to win. So let's go back and actually start now to look in this third section of this question of circumstances and this question of how to do it. Well, first point I would, I would make is that for the Americans, they were not clear on three different levels. They were not clear on the same levels the British weren't clear on. They weren't clear what was going to happen in America. They weren't clear what was going to happen in Britain. And they weren't clear what was going to happen in the international realm. And they really needed all three to work together. They needed to be sufficiently successful in America. Nobody, no American really believed um, uh, once the British had come back in full strength in 76. They didn't believe that they would be able to smash all the British forces to capture all the places. And of course they didn't. The British remain in occupation of New York City and Charleston, the two principal uh, uh, economic places in the, in the colonies until the very end of the war. The only way that you get, get, get them out is by negotiations. Indeed, as you may know, the year of the war that nobody ever writes about is 1782. Does anybody know? Question time again. You will recall I spoke on James Bond, so I will press the button and you, you will get electrocuted if you get it wrong. Um, does anybody know what the, the American goal was to capture in 1782? New York, thank you. Did they succeed? No, absolutely. Yorktown was all very well, but in terms of substantive success, and substantive success means getting the British out of the 13 colonies, then doing well in North America isn't enough because they're not going to be able to do, they're not going to be able to drive the Brits out. What they also need to do is get the other two uh, levels to work. Level number one, the battle of opinion in Britain. Level number two, the international sphere. The same for the British. If they're going to win, what they need to do is to maintain domestic political support. They need to make sure that the international, the geopolitical environment is reasonably favourable. It doesn't mean that people aren't going to uh, quarrel with them. It's just that they've got to make sure that they're not going to absolutely smash them. And as far as North America is concerned, the British don't for a second imagine they're going to conquer all of North America. There's no way they can. Incidentally, in 1865, the North didn't conquer all of the South. There were areas of the South that never saw a Union regiment. But what they want to 
to do is so to defeat their opponent that their opponent will decide to stop fighting. And that should remind you of the key element in war, which is the difference between output and outcome. Output is winning battles, capturing territory. The Americans victorious at Yorktown and Saratoga. The British victorious at, say, Brandywine and Long Island. People capturing at various stages, places like New York or Philadelphia, Charleston or Boston. But outcome is what really counts. Outcome is persuading the other side to stop fighting on your terms. Enforcing your will on them. And it was very unclear to both sides whether they were going to be able to do it. And in many senses, circumstances start to go out of control for both sides as the war continues. On the American side, the strain of the war rises dramatically. It's a marvellous book by Harold Selensky, who's an American academic, on Connecticut. Connecticut is a state which saw very little fighting apart from a few British raids on the coast. But Connecticut is the breadbasket state of the war. It's where the Americans literally get most of the grain for their army from. And what he's showing is as the war is continuing, the state is getting more and more exhausted. Uh, its economy is collapsing. It's finding it harder and harder to sustain the war. And if you look at the Washington correspondence, you will see that Washington's correspondence, both the letters he writes and the letters he receives, are quite candid about the financial difficulties, about the difficulties of getting people to fight. Anybody tell me which was the year in the war in which most American patriots came forward to fight? Well, it's the beginning the beginning. That's where, by the end, very few people were keen to fight. In fact, as you may know, at the beginning of 1781, both the Pennsylvania line and the New Jersey line mutinied, which was unusual, very unusual to mutiny, because usually the soldiers just walked off home, much to Washington's irritation, because they usually took their guns with them. He wouldn't have my Desertion was bad enough, but what's really serious is, if you're short of guns, is desertion with the people taking their guns with them. So, there are real strains for the American war effort as late as the beginning of 81. And the British know all about this. Both sides have people reporting on the others. So the British know all about this. So, the Americans are under strain. But, of course, the British are under strain as well. Because the war is not ending as they'd wanted. What they want to do is to hit the Americans and then get them to negotiate. So the Howe brothers, the general and the admiral, which go out, who go out to take command, are given both instructions to win, but also to instructions to negotiate with the Americans. In 78, the Carlisle Commission goes out to America to try and arrange a peaceful solution, a negotiated solution. That goes wrong. The British find that they cannot create a basis on a negotiated basis, partly because enough of the revolutionaries don't want to negotiate, and that's why the British switch their strategy to try and get individual areas, starting with Georgia and uh, South Carolina, to have a peace settlement and to return, in British eyes, to their loyalty. And then on top of all of this, for both the Americans and the British, the international context is highly uncertain. OK, France, Spain come into the war. What the Americans don't know is whether they're going to stay in the war. 
And in fact, the French Foreign Minister Vergen sees the war as a very quick interlude to bush the British on the nose and then to negotiate with the British so that they both stand up against the Russians. He is more concerned about the Russians than he is against the British. Spain is coming into the war to pursue its own territorial interests. It wants Jamaica back, it wants Gibraltar back. There is the anxiety for the Americans that if the British just cede the Spaniards Gibraltar, then maybe the Spaniards will ditch them. They're worried the French will ditch them. The British are worried that this alliance will actually do them real harm. So everybody is getting more agitated and more concerned. And in that context, they are gambling more. Cornwallis's march into Virginia in 1781 is a gamble. It's a rash gamble because there isn't sufficient control of the sea at that moment because too many British warships have been left in the West Indies. They've got too many warships in the West Indies. They're therefore unable to challenge the French fleet off the mouth of the Chesapeake successfully. It's a gamble. So where do we end up with? Where we end up with is a war which is very much more complex than the American national mythos of the war. It's a war, incidentally, which is not at all like, as it was sometimes compared in the, 17, uh, sorry, in the 1960s or 70s to Vietnam, it's not at all like the Vietnam War. This was a civil war within the empire. These people all spoke English. They had all been um, subjects of the British crown. Some of them wanted to be on, some of them didn't want to be on. As far as I'm aware, Vietnam had never been a state of the union. So the comparison between the two, the two is facile and silly. Um, but the, the point is that this was a uncertain struggle and that uncertainty throws attention on the quality of the political and military leadership in America which against the background of really not knowing what was going on managed to do what is always important in war which is to manage risk Washington, in many senses, may well be his personality, it may well be uh, the character, it may well be a sense of grim duty, and I think it's a combination of all of those. But he was very good at managing risk. He realised fairly quickly that there was not going to be the brilliant successes against the British. They tried that. They tried to stop the British capturing New York in 76 and were thrashed at Long Island. They tried to stop them capturing Philly in 77 and were thrashed at Brandywine. Washington had the sense to rethink America's strategic position, to rethink how to conduct the war and to play for a very long hand, knowing that this very long hand was going to be politically difficult because it actually meant at the same time that there was no quick fix that you could give to offer to people who were exhausted, who were suffering financially, who were under enormous pressure. All of those factors helped to direct one to the issue of leadership. That group of leaders not only were people who were able to frame the Constitution, but were actually able also to conduct a war against the most powerful empire then in the world. To have achieved that was a great achievement, and it's an achievement that is underrated by presenting the war as if it was inevitable that one side would win and the other side would lose. Thank you very much. Right, 
I shall just remind you, I will be taking questions from the audience in a few moments. If you would like to ask a question, please approach one of the two standing mics in the aisles. Before asking your question, please tell us your name, and out of respect for the other people waiting their turn, please ask one question and make it brief. Two staff members are on hand if you need any assistance. Right, well, let's go for... My name is Philip, Philip Spees. First, I want to thank you for an extremely informative lecture. And then can I ask, in a couple minutes, if you could expand upon your last point of illustrations of the uniqueness of their leadership that, uh, that you addressed? Fine, thank you very much. Well, let's contrast it with those other insurrections that the British encountered, the Jacobite risings of you know, 1516 and 45, 46, or the Irish Rising of 1798. In each of those cases, there were brave men, and, you know, the, although women didn't fight, of course, there were also strains on the home community, there were brave men and women who wanted to support that conflict. But in each case, the leadership was weak. In the case of um, the Jacobites, they essentially relied on traditional monarchical practice. The leader of the Jacobites in um, 1715 was James III, that's what they called him, the son of James II. The leader in 1745 was his son, Bonnie Prince Charlie. They were romantic, Charles Edward Stuart, they were romantic figures, but they lacked the capacity to understand that in order to win, you have to be able to elicit consent, but also lead. And that balance, they tried to lead, but they didn't know how to elicit consent. So famously on December the 5th, 1745, the Scottish Highland chiefs, no longer trusting Charles Edward Stuart, and who he'd never spent much time talking to them, just said, we're marching back. We are not marching on on London. There was no equivalent to that with George Washington. George Washington was both the commander of the Continental Army, but he knew how to get it to work as a cohesive group among people who were not used to taking orders from each other. Far easier to fight with a regular army in which the officer corps has been there for 20 years and have, as, as it were, um, come up th that way. As far as Ireland was concerned, the United Irishmen, which is the equivalent, I suppose, of the um, Continental Group, again, they, la they lacked a cohesion. And some of their leaders, Lord Edward Fitzgerald, for example, were very sort of meteoric individuals. They were very self-willed. And in a sense, to, to, rule, to lead something like Washington, you need to have confidence in your ability, which he did have, but you need to actually persuade people as well. And that balance was very unusual. Now, I'm taking them one at a time, so yes. Thank you again, uh, Professor, for a wonderful speech. I'm Jim Pasinich. I'm a docent here. My question deals with the financial state of Great Britain at the end of the war. I think I read that one of the pressures that, that were brought to bear on the British to settle the war was that they were basically financially broke by the end of the war. Something like 70% of the government expenditure in 1783 went to pay the interest on loans that they had procured to fight the war. Is that accurate? Well, they could certainly under financial strain, but they could go on fighting if they wanted. The point is that governments of that period don't pay for social welfare. So there's no equivalent of Medicaid or Medicare or for paying for transport systems or paying for education or paying for health. I mean, so if you look at present British budgets, 25% goes on the national health, 25% goes on social security. Absolutely none of that. The principal causes of British 
government expenditure in the 18th century was the national debt, which, as you mentioned, was substantial, and each war Britain fought the national debt went up, and paying for the running costs of the army and the navy. Britain's able to fight that war without going off the gold standard. The next war they fight, the French Revolutionary War, which is a much more expensive war, they do have to go off the gold standard in 1797, and they do have to introduce income tax. But they're able to fight the American War without going off the gold standard or without going off income tax because, essentially, the loans that they are uh, floating are fully subscribed. So, and, of course, it's always the case that if you look at the country that's in the worst financial mess, it is not the country with the biggest debt. I think your debt in the world is the biggest. That's because people are willing to lend to you. The country that's in the mess is the country which nobody wants to lend to. So Britain is in a much better situation because, yes, it's got enormous debts, but people still reckon it will be able to pay them at that point, and they'd rather have their money vested in London. Uh, the particular technical thing which you might be interested in is the funded national debt in Britain, in, which was set up in 1694 by the Bank of England. The way it worked is there was a parliamentary guarantee of the financial of the debt, and it's secured against gold in its value. So sterling is on the it's on the gold standard. Whereas the problem with everybody else is essentially, if the government chose to, it could just float new loans without adequate security. So the way that we would think inconceivable. You know, in other words, it's tall. everybody else is running quantitative easing, whereas what the British are doing is actually issuing debt that has some sort of basis in people's confidence that they'll be able to repay it. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I'm Ravi Rosden, and thanks to you, I had to, rem I had to renew my membership here. Congratulations. <laughs> my question to you is, uh, what were the terms of the British uh, government to the Cornwallis um, for negotiations, uh, were it independence or leather independence or what? Thank you. That's a very interesting question again. In essence, what the government offered was what we would call, what we would later call, dominion status. In other words, the same process that was introduced for Canada, Australia and New Zealand in the 19th century. For the, for the former colonists, this was no good. They wanted, as you correctly say, independence. The British government didn't want them to have independence because it was worried that if they became independent that they would ally with Britain's opponents, particularly France, um, and that they wouldn't, have any, you know, they wouldn't have any ability to know that they wouldn't do that. But what the British state was willing to do by 78, and they'd even got toward most of it there by 76, is to say self-government under the crown. That was what they were offering, so that they would have been able to run their own finances and everything apart from their armed forces. The armed forces would have been part of an imperial system. So, we'll go back to that one, yes. Thank you, Professor. A very fruitful presentation. Uh, my name is Warren, and uh, I believe I'm, I'm very... Uh, I'm questioning the morale of the average British soldier, <clears throat> excuse me, because the uh, Washington got his troops inspired in, 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 in spite of the rough winters, the difficult winters and the tragic defeats, how did the, the British soldier react to this being thousands of miles away, literally on their own in a vast country where they did, many of them did not know what was beyond it, going into the West. So what was the morale of the, uh, of the British soldier? That may have played a uh, part in their the losing. 
No, the morale was pretty good. These were all professionals. No voluntary... Uh, sorry, no conscription. Britain doesn't introduce conscription until 1916. So these were all professionals, and in a way, that's their job, that's their life. Their life is their regiment. Um, and the, um, the British don't face any mutinies in, among the troops. Desertion is extraordinarily low, extraordinarily low. These are people who just go on and do their job. And it, actually, that raises a very interesting point, the point you're making there. There is, how shall one put it, there is a, and it used to be stronger, much stronger, a conceit, a belief, a, uh, a uh, determination to argue that in some way professional soldiers are less motivated than enthusiasts. And obviously in the American context, one refers to the German, quote, mercenaries, for example, as if soldiers don't, aren't usually paid. Um, but the, the, um, we've got to be very careful about that. We've now moved back to an 18th century system. So the biggest change in many respects in the military, in the United States, in Britain, and in most countries, is that we no longer have conscription systems. It's no longer the citizen under arms. It's no longer an aspect of citizenship. We expect and want professionalism. And let me tell you, generals do not want conscription. They don't want the average unfit, uh, poorly motivated person messing up their, uh, their equipment, okay? So it, the, the, our present system is to understand the values of professionalism. And we have to be very careful when we're looking to the past. Many of the best American soldiers in the War of Independence were people who were good precisely because they'd already had military service. In other words, the idea that the amateur just comes forward and can defy the state as if sort of the Montana militiamen could take on the United States Army today. It's, 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 you've got to be very careful about that. Professionalism, professionals have the great skill of maintaining unit cohesion when they're under fire, of taking casualties and keeping going. Amateurs classically are all very enthusiastic until the guts of the man next to them is blown across their face. Then they often change their mind. Yes, sir. Good morning. I was curious, uh, what was the role that Benjamin Franklin played in the war and was it something of very great importance? Yes, that's very interesting. I've been asked about the role of Franklin. Franklin is very significant for the negotiation of the relationship between France and the United States. I mean, in many senses, Franklin helps to make what appears initially to be a rather undesirable cause. You know, the French, after all, have colonies of their own. Should people be encouraging rebellions in colonies? The, there had been a rebellion in Louisiana in 1766 when it had been transferred, after it had been transferred from Spain to France, and the French government knew, and obviously suppressed it and hung, hung the ringleaders, uh, but they were not necessarily going to back rebels. And Franklin is very important in arguing to the French that A, this is a viable state, B, that it's a state that can be relied upon, that if the French go to war with Britain, that, you know, the, the North America won't just collapse, and that it will be, a, as it were, partner for France thereafter. The last one, of course, was not true. 
Uh, and there's a book by an American scholar, Peter Hill, on French views of the early republic, 1783 to 93. And it's full of French commentators complaining that, you know, they'd fought for the Americans and look how the Americans had treated them. Um, now, that kind of attitude is always commonplace between allies. But I think it's, it's reasonable to say that Franklin... Without Franklin, it would have been a harder job because France in 1778 was also allied to Austria and Austria and Prussia went to war that year, the War of the Bavarian Succession. And there were many French policymakers who didn't want to get involved in North America and they wanted to fight a war against the Prussians. So, you know, Franklin is really quite important in how he does it. It gives a steer to French politics. Yes, sir. My name is John Kelly. It's about, uh... There's an American TV show uh, called Turn, which is based on a book called Washington Spies. Just uh, two questions related to that. One, I was curious if you knew it and how historically accurate the book or show are. And then secondly, uh, what's the importance of um, intelligence, the intelligence battle between the two and the outcome of the war? Thank you. I'm afraid I don't know the book or the programme, so I can't comment on it. As far as intelligence is concerned, there isn't an adequate study on either the British or the Patriot intelligence systems, or for that matter, the French intelligence systems. It's probable that they were highly important, and of course each side had a much greater capacity to penetrate the other because of the, as it were, the role of loyalists and Patriots and the way in which you can move between or pretend that you're betraying somebody. There were obviously spies we know about. Um, but as yet, nobody has written what I would regard from the scholarly point of view as an adequate book on military intelligence during that war. It's an opportunity for somebody. Hello, I've really enjoyed your lecture. Uh, Patty Sayer, and I'm wondering why did the British not fight us in at Dorchester Heights? Why did they give us a pass? Yes, that's uh, an interesting thing. I think... I'm, there's no document which says why, all right? So let's be first of all clear about this, that the documentary base is often one one, can, one has to extrapolate. I think by that stage, they knew that Massachusetts, with the forces they had available, was not really doable. And they'd already started to think that the better place to project their powers into the middle colonies. And they were already thinking very hard about New York. And I think that's quite significant, that um, the other place in 76 they uh, make an effort at is Charleston. Their first effort against Charleston is an amphibious operation in 76. And they can't do everything. And I think they've decided to switch towards what they see as more viable propositions. Well, as you may know, they get the Charleston one wrong in 76. They engage one of the forts on the islands off. It just doesn't work out. But they do succeed in New York. So in a sense, the risk was an was a adequate one. Whether it would have been worth hanging on to Boston, probably not, because the opportunity from Boston to, as it were, to, uh, to direct opinion, to in influence opinion into the hinterland is very limited. Limited, given that Massachusetts was one of the central points. Hi there. Um, thank you for the presentation. Um, so we def we heard a lot of information about how difficult it was for the Americans and how really it should have seemed as if the British won, if you look at it on paper. But what maybe you can expand upon, please, what were the reasons of how the Americans won? Why, why are you saying it's specifically because of Washington or combination of factors, Lafayette, um, people really believing in a cause, um, it being so far from home for the Brits, that sort of thing? Um, you know, if you could talk more about how we won. Thank you. Um, 
Well, in a sense, the point I was trying to make is that neither side had won by 81. Mm -hmm. And that as late as that, it was very uncertain for both sides. The Americans had stopped the British winning. No two ways, it was probably too big a task in the sense of trying to reimpose authority everywhere. And what in particular had happened is the British had found it that they were, their southern strategy was succeeding up to a point, but that controlling the low country just didn't bring enough control over the hinterland. And there was a question ultimately, since what the British wanted was a closure in which they didn't have a large occupation force, they needed something other, they needed some political solution. And there's no sign on the American part of any willingness to negotiate in 81. So the Americans have stopped the British winning and the British have stopped the Americans winning. Um, the Americans are not able to take the major ports the British hold. They're not able to create a striking force that is going to uh, drive the British in and any of their bases outside the 13 colonies. They tried that in Canada in 75, 76, and it had failed. It's to fail again in 18, 12, 13, and 14, of course. It's a difficult task. And they don't have the capacity to attack the British West Indies or to attack uh, the British homeland. You know, John Paul Jones can sail around with a few ships, but fundamentally, there's nothing he can do about it. So neither side can win in those terms of total victory. And it then really becomes the question of how the war is going to end. And what I would say in 81, 82, 83 is the question of how the war is going to end. The Americans have made it quite clear they're not going to return to loyalty under the British Crown. So from that point of view, it's always going to end in independence for at least those areas that are fighting against the British. The question is, what is that going to constitute? What's that going to constitute? I mean, bluntly, are the British going to clear out of a place like this? And the um, there's a whole host of reasons why you end up with the British accepting a partition of British North America, which is what happens. British North America is partitioned in 1783. Um, and I would say that, in a sense, the Rockinghamite Whigs who come to power in 1782 when Lord North's government falls, the Rockinghamite Whigs have become relatively sympathetic to the Americans. So the British have this coalition against them, France, America, Spain, and the Dutch. And it's a mixture of sentiment and cynicism, that le which is obviously a mixture you often see in politics, which leads them to offer the best terms to the Americans. Because, of course, what they reckon, if they're in the cynical level, they reckon the Americans will ditch their allies, which indeed is what happens. Um, on the sentimental sense, they have a sort of feeling, the Rockingmite Whigs and Shelburne, when he comes in, has the same feeling, that the Americans, as they've constructed a government, they really quite like what they're seeing. They see this, particularly the Rockingmite Whigs, who had been in opposition to George III's government in Britain, they see this as a kind of acceptable alternative form. So I think that that is significant, the way in which America develops. I think if America had been run by a caudillo on the Latin American pattern, you know, I think it would have been much harder. 
So the way in which Washington is presented in Europe as a kind of reasonable servant of the people and not as some sort of autocratic man of blood, I think that's quite important to the imaging of America among political circles in, in, in Britain. And as you probably know, what happens is the Americans are offered the best deal, they rat on their allies, then the British offer a pretty good deal to the French, they rat on their allies, then they offer a very bad deal to the Spaniards who want to go on fighting, but since the Americans and French don't want to go on fighting, that's it, and then they offer the worst of all deals to the Dutch, and in fact they don't sign with the Dutch till 84. And they peeled off, because by then, what the British are looking for is the post-war world. Um, as, as indeed are the Americans. But the British are looking for a post-war world in which not so much they're bothered by what happens in America, they're assuming that, in fact, trade will resume with the Americans, as it, do, as it does. What they're worried about is the possibility that America and France will be post-war allies, and therefore that, in a sense, there'll be another war at some stage to kick the British out of the West Indies or Canada um, or even Ireland. And in a sense, having lost the war, the British are reasonably successful at winning the peace, which from their point of view is quite important. Thank you. Uh, my name is Mark Knackman, and I want to thank you for that wonderful tour de force of a talk uh, that you gave us for an hour there. Uh, the, it was titled, um, How Washington Won. And, um, one of the reasons I came here today was to find out how important Washington was, Washington himself, to winning the war. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, in, in military terms, he's a good, uh, what I call, political general, rather like Eisenhower. Okay, so we're not talking about the most astute reader of terrain or topography. And indeed, as a battlefield commander, as you know, he gets it wrong at, um, at uh, Long Island and he gets it wrong at Brandywine. And Germantown and Monmouth Courthouse are better, but, you know, possibly he should have done even better at both of those. And Charles Lee, you know, the, uh, his uh, critic, uh, as it were, who is in some respects a better general as a military commander. But Washington's great skill is holding together the Continental Army. And in the European context, the idea that there is a body in America that represents more than the fissiparous tradition or tendencies of the individual provinces, the individual states, is really important. Um, it used to be argued uh, by people that uh, it was Saratoga that was uh, instrumental in getting the French into the war. It's now regarded the American scholar Orville T. Murphy did a very, some very good work on Vergennes' attitudes, that in fact it's Germantown, it's Washington's ability uh, after the defeat at Brandywine to keep the army in being, the main field army in being, and to actually strike back at the British. It's, it's not a brilliantly successful battle, Germantown, but what it showed Europe was that the British claim that they'd won uh, was wrong. Um, so that that's very, very significant. The other thing is um, he manages, despite all the tendencies of the states to not divert resources to the Central Army, to at least keep the Central Army in being. And that's very important because it means there is a force available when the British turn up in, uh, in Virginia. There is a force available to strike at it. And lastly, and just a more general point about Washington, um, there are two systems of monarchical government. You can have a monarchical government which is a hereditary monarchy 
in which, um, you know, you deal with the problem of legitimacy and you deal with the problem of succession, but you have the problem that you might not have competence. Many, just because somebody's been born in the right bed doesn't mean they're particularly competent. So that's hereditary monarchy. The other form of monarchy is meritocratic monarchy, where somebody gains power through their own effort. Most meritocratic monarchs are not necessarily terribly desirable people. Napoleon, for example, Hitler. Um, the United States system of a kind of meritocratic monarch who understands the limitations of his or her uh, position is one which is obviously always a work in being. It's still a work in being. You'd expect that in any political system. But it owes a lot to the way in which the revolutionary cause coheres around Washington without becoming simply dependent on him. I think that's very important. There's, in other words, he has a much greater sense of his own limitations than, say, Bolivar does in uh, Venezuela and Colombia. And as a result of which, I think there is far less violence. A good link to that, as you may know, Bolivar is responsible for executing quite a lot of critics within the, uh, the revolutionary cause who disagree with him. Well, Washington doesn't really do that. He isn't a man of blood. The revolution doesn't go like the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution or the Chinese Revolution in which you terrorise your internal critics. I mean, it wasn't jolly being a loyalist, and the loyalists and the patriots gave each other a lot of hell in the back country of the Carolinas. But there's no systematic policy of rounding up people uh, forcing them to disgorge things, shooting them if you don't like what their attitudes are, forcing service in, in a conscript system. I mean, Washington just about gets the balance right. I don't know whether that's because he was a brilliant man or just a perceptive man. I suspect, like most of us, he was just perceptive, but I think he certainly was perceptive. Sir. Uh, thank you, Professor Black, both for your presentation and for your wonderful accent. Well, <laughs> my name is Beverly Tyler. On uh, a local level on Long Island, by 1780, the um, British have uh, basically so um, angered the population that the majority had switched from being loyalists to being um, patriots, because uh, they even said in a number of pieces of correspondence um, that they really didn't like Americans, and it didn't matter which side they were on, they just didn't like Americans. And I was wondering um, how much effect that had in other places aside from Long Island uh, as far as the attitude and idea of whether the British could actually win. Yes, that's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of tension within the British Army as to how to treat the Americans. Um, you get some officers uh, calling for what was known, what they called as a, a hard war or a hard policy, arguing that really people needed to um, be bullied, uh, forced into um, uh, loyalty. Remember, legally, these people were traitors. Legally, they could have hung the lot of them. Um, the, uh, the attitude of the British senior commanders and the British government was that this was not to happen. And I think it's fair to say that um, 
both sides, with the, the same was true of the Continental Army, both sides treated prisoners pretty well by the standards of the age, given that you're in a counterinsurgency war. This is not a war between conventional forces, okay? This is not a war, a state-to-state -state war. But there, I think it's fair to say you get some British officers who think it's all getting ridiculous and they've got to be much firmer. There's an American scholar called Joseph Tiedemann who wrote a rather good article on the attitude of British, uh, T-I-E-D-E-M-A-N, or two Ns, I can't remember, I read it some years ago, and he wrote a rather good article about the attitudes of British officers in New Jersey, and he illustrates in this article this real tension within the army as to how to treat, um, how to treat civilians. Thank you. Yes, my name is David Dubin, and I'm uh, curious, in, given the portrayal of the situation at the end of the war, not being a total victory on either side, uh, how the Paris Treaty of uh, 1783 was negotiated. As I recall, Madison and John Jay, a New Yorker, were the principal Americans there. How much of the ultimate peace was actually negotiated at that conference, and what well, sort of guidance did the Americans have as they yes, there? Yes, um, the Americans got pretty well everything they wanted, so the negotiation was quite easy for them, if you see what I mean. Um, the British... The key thing for the British was to split the Americans from the French. That was absolutely the key thing. Since the Americans took the view that what they were there to negotiate was the independence of America, and that what happened after the war was a matter for what happened after the war, as it were, it wasn't too difficult, the Anglo-American Anglo relations. The complicating factor was that the British government was weak. In 1780, 1782, the Lord North government falls. Britain's had the same government since 1770. The Rockingham government comes in. Rockingham dies that summer. His government falls to pieces. Shelburne comes in. His government falls to pieces in the spring of 83. Um, and then the Fox North government comes in, and that government falls to pieces that December. So, in other words, the problems of the war have helped to provoke a political crisis in Britain. So the major difficulty is the British are trying to devise policy with governments that are changing and where they don't know whether the Parliament will support their terms, because peace treaties at that stage had to go through Parliament. From the American point of view, there is a slight degree of irritation of having to listen to British uh, negotiators saying, well, we, we think that's reasonable, but we don't really know what Parliament is going to say. And that irritates the Americans. Um, I, you would be surprised to hear that modern, uh, modern foreigners negotiating with the United States find it rather irritating to be told that it's not clear what Congress will think. So, uh, <laughs> so. Uh, My name's Kim Gallagher. Uh, I've got a, a follow-up question about George Washington. Uh, if he had been killed, uh, say, a chance shot at Princeton or Trenton uh, right at the beginning of 77. He'd been in place for a while, but killed then. Would we have lost? Well, that's a very interesting question, a counterfactual or what if. Um, I suppose on the military side, it has to be said that there is a very varied quality of leadership. If the leader had been Benjamin Lincoln, for example, yeah. Um, who is responsible for the biggest debacler of the war from the American point of view. Um, he's responsible for Charleston's fall in 1780, having told everybody that, you know, they'll fight to the death kind of thing, and then the British, the swine, starts shelling the city, and then uh, he surrenders with over 5,000 men. You know, if you'd had a bad commander like that, it might have been quite tough, because it might have been very difficult to hold together 
the constituent parts. I can't see how New England would have done a deal with the British Crown. I think it had gone too far. But you can see how pretty well every other state in, you know, could possibly have gone back to, their, to a deal of some type or other. Um, so, yes, I think Washington is significant. I mean, it does depend partly about who had succeeded him. I mean, there are some, you know, there are some American commanders. I don't think Charles Lee had the political skill to hold things together. Um, Nathaniel Green did, but he was too junior in 1776. The senior people, I mean, Horatio Gates is pretty useless. Benjamin Lincoln is pretty useless. So, but you know, the same thing is true on the British Army. The British Army is not exactly flush with talent during that war. So, I mean, I, I think one always has to remember the balance, the balance element. You know, you can always on one side point to the terrible disadvantages one's suffering from until one then looks to the other side and see they have similar or different problems. And all I was trying to say was not that it was simply chance that America wins its, wins its independence, but that it was actually something that had to be fought for with considerable difficulty in very harsh circumstances where it was very unclear to contemporaries what was going to happen. That's about as far as I think we can take it. To then say, on such and such a moment, if such and such a thing had happened, there would have been inevitable consequences from it, is I think further than I'd be happy to push it. I've published a book on counterfactualism, which uh, you, know, you can read in the library. I'm not saying you should buy it. But I mean, it's, uh, Indiana published it this summer. And it's called Other Paths. And what I'm trying to do in that is really direct people's attention to how far you can take counterfactual thought experiments, which we all do in life. What happens if I'd met her at a party you know, 30 years ago? So it's a perfectly, re well, it's a perfectly reasonable counterfactual. You know, so, so you know, you've got that perspective but you've also got to be wary of assuming that you'd have had inevitable consequences stemming from a change you know a, a change and the other thing you've got to be very 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 careful is thinking about counterfactuals that wouldn't have occurred to contemporaries so the uh, enormous um, you know the tsunami in the western approaches on the night of the 5th to the 6th of June uh, 1944 which went down the channel destroying the Anglo-American invasion fleet well it's possible there's no inherent reason to believe that a tsunami or an enormous meteorite landing in the western approaches is inconceivable but since nobody thought about it and it wasn't part of the planning it's really not terribly helpful uh, but no, a reasonable point, what would have happened if Washington had died. Yes, yes, madam. Good morning. My name's Colleen Roach. You listed several reasons today why America was incredibly unlikely to have won this war of independence. And I wondered if you would um, tell us, in your personal opinion, which battle was the most improbable American victory? There are certain battles that loom large in the American mythology, such as victory at Trenton, for example. Is there one that you find the most improbable? That's an interesting thing, and of course it's analogous for other civil wars like the, the American Civil War. Trenton is certainly important for pricking the confidence of the British Army that it's won in 76. And most people had assumed in 76 that the whole American side was falling to pieces. After all, Congress flees from Philadelphia to Baltimore. Uh, New Jersey is rising up in loyalism as the British advance. Uh, British expeditionary forces take a Newport. Um, what the British Army is assuming is next year it's just going to have to march, you know, because they'll obviously stop for the, the depth of the winter. They'll have to march just overland to Philly, and it's not far to go. Um, so that, Trenton, is very important, yes. I don't think there's any two ways about it. But I'd still say it's unclear what would have happened as late as Yorktown. Because each side would have 
come to a compromise peace. And I'm sure that compromise peace would have included American independence of some type. But what American independence would have meant in the absence of that victory is less clear. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yes, yes, sir. Thank you. My name's Charles Shepard. Stimulating, thought-provoking. Thank you. Thank you. I'd, one has seen that the, often the British, off, British general officers were considered second-rate uh, in their quality, uh, and I'm wondering if it was the quality of them, or was the government bureaucracy holding them back? You know, how would you rate the? Well, I think officer? it's very difficult to conduct a war on the other side of the Atlantic in the absence of uh, rapid communications. So I think that that's the case. Again, second rate. Well, they were unsuccessful, but they were able to win individual battles, some of them quite spectacular, and to seize positions. You know, the amphibious landings on Manhattan Island were actually very impressive, uh, very impressive operations. Um, I'm not sure. It comes back to this, I, this question we've been toying with, which is one which it, essentially there isn't, cannot be a conclusive answer, which is what would have happened if there'd been more military success? Would it have had the political outcome? Because with war, it's all about politics. It's trying to move from output to outcome. And really, that was a question of the political environment, which is so difficult to call. Last question, madam. Yes, my name is Audrey Belafond, and I too enjoy your accent, Professor um, Black, and thank you for your presentation. Um, how is it that the British were still able to hold on to the islands right at the doorstep of the United States? And did, was this, did the United States ever see the presence of the British in the West Indies as a threat? Yes, that's, again, a very interesting... Um, there was some campaigning in the Bahamas in 1783, but essentially the United States didn't really have a major fleet, a you know, really ocean-going fleet, capable of engaging with what was a great naval power until, I suppose... I mean, the Union and Britain nearly came to, to, to blows over the Trent Affair in 1861-62. Uh, at that stage, the Americans didn't think they would beat the British at sea. I think you've really got to wait till Tessie Roosevelt's Great White Fleet in the 1900s. And prior to that, America was fine to attack secondary naval powers. Spain in 1898 is the obvious example, and they didn't really have to worry about the Mexican Navy during the Mexican-American War. But um, the Americans didn't like the British in the West Indies, and they liked them even less when the British abolished the slave trade. And then they liked them even less when they abolished slavery. And southern uh, filibusters, as you may know, wanted to expand the power of the United States into the Caribbean. Their particular objective was Cuba, because they believed, in the 1850s this, they believed that it would be possible to sustain Cuba as a state society, as a slave society, and that that would um, strengthen the cause of slavery within the Union. Um, the, uh, but the British were not going to let them attack Cuba. You know, they just simply weren't going to let them do it. And the, I think it's fair to say America was quite divided. In, the, in New York, for example, a lot of opposition to southern filibustering. 
Um, so, yes, the Americans were interested in it, some of them were, but it was very, very confused by the issue of slavery and by the fact that they really didn't want to fight Britain unless it was to conquer Canada. That was the issue that was really important. And they blamed the Brits for stirring up the Native Americans. Of course, the, Native Am the, the Brits didn't see it like that, but again, that wouldn't be, you wouldn't be surprised to hear there were two different ways of looking at things. But thank you for your question. So we thank you again, Jeremy Black. Um, stay tuned, he will be returning in the spring. We're, we're already planning um, several programs ahead. And again, thank you to the Foreign Policy Research Institute, Alan Luxemburg, for bringing to us and introducing wonderful speakers like Jeremy Black. Enjoy the morning, come back again. We'll see you all. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.